Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O you who have granted us to pray together in harmony, and who promised that when two or three are gathered to call upon your name, you will give what they ask. Do you now fulfill what your servants ask, so far as it is good, granting us in this world the knowledge of your truth, and in the world to come, eternal life? For you are good, O our God, and you love mankind. And we render glory to you, to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. We'll do a little bit of review before we start the second half, because this is one lecture divided into two evenings. We had a question at the, at the end about some other uprisings that took place in France around the same time as the uprising in the Vendée. And I mentioned that in Brittany, there was a similar royalist uprising and that Balzac had written a novel about it, which I recommend, but I couldn't remember the title. And the title of that is Les Chouans, so C-H-O-U-A-N-S. And I recommend that Balzac novel, uh, much like the Trollope novel on the Vendée. There's a handout tonight. On that handout, there are some books at the top recommended reading. We talked about Renan Sachet and the work that he's done in making this story known in France, where it is not terribly well known. Uh, the Michael Ross book, uh, Peter Parrott. Uh, I also want to recommend to you for just general, I, I, I brought these up um, last night or two nights ago, but for general study on the revolution, uh, the church at, turning, at the turning points in history by Godfrey Kurth. The chapter in there on the revolution is well worth reading. I think we put the link up to it. I know you can get it from Angelus Press. If you're just going to read one thing, you know, 10 pages or 15 pages on the revolution, I'd read the chapter in Kurth's book. My friends at the Rockford Institute, where I used to work, we, when I was there, we brought out uh, Augustin Cochin's book for the first time in English, Organizing the Revolution. And this book will give you a good, clear understanding of how the revolution was fomented by these middle-class intellectual social clubs. It was not the peasant uprising that we're often told that it was. So I recommend that to you. And when I was at Rockford, in 2011, we devoted one of our summer schools to the revolution in France. And if you go to chroniclesmagazine.org, I know you can order all those lectures. There are 17 of them in all, including the one you're about, or the second half of which you're about to hear tonight. Uh, you could go to the teaching company and order something on the revolution. You would not get the truth. Uh, you'd get kind of a nice middle C presentation that would tell you, oh, yes, a lot of people were killed, but in the end, it ushered in this new era of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Nothing could be further from the truth. The revolution is a turning point in history. It is a war against the two things on which Christian civilization was built, the monarchy and the church. And if you were to order that set of lectures from the Rockford Institute, chroniclesmagazine.org, and I think we've got the link up there, uh, then you would get a much clearer picture and understanding from the, the Christian perspective of what the revolution was. And then also my own recorded lecture uh, that you can get at catholic.com or shop.catholic.com on the Vendette. Chris, sorry to interrupt you, but those are all posted on our website. So anyone who's interested in those can just go to our website, click there, and they'll have links to all those resources. Okay. So uh, let's do a little bit of review. Uh, we talked about last 
or two nights ago, uh, this event in the Vendee, this uprising in the Vendee, that was a reaction to the to, to the revolution, specific and, and specifically elements of the revolution, the, uh, the 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 civil constitution of the clergy, which required, which set the, the revolutionary government of France in authority over the Catholic Church and required priests and bishops, you know, to sign this civil constitution, how we had a division between uh, what were called juring and non-juring priests, priests who would not sign the civil constitution, how Pius VI uh, declared that any priests who signed the civil constitution the jur uh, 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 of the clergy were uh, automatically in schism, how m the vast majority of the bishops and the clergy were faithful to Rome, the great quote from Alexis de Tocqueville saying, that the, the French clergy at this time, at the time, probably represented you know the the, the height uh, of clergy in history. The contra the contrast between the bishops and the clergy in England at the time of Henry VIII and the clergy in France at the time of the Revolution. So 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 the so the person so the so the persecution of the church, specifically the clergy, was one of the things that provoked this rising in the Vendee. The, uh, the, the then we talked about the Vendee as the, this region. If you look at that map, Monica, you can probably throw it up at some point here. The the, the region in the Vendee in West Central France, right? Very much a, a rural, a devout, fervent part of France that uh, where where the where the harmony of the Agricultural calendar uh, was very much tied to the harmony of uh, the, litur or, or the, the liturgical calendar and the agricultural cycle were very much in harmony, where there was great uh, devotion uh, to the Sacred Hearts, um, that Francis de Sales had been through this region and inspired the fervor of these people. We talked about the region of the Vendee being a place where the noblemen and the common man, the common peasant, were not so separated as they were in other parts of France. So there was a close relationship between the nobility and the and, and the common people of the Vendée region. Uh, that it was there was a rich agricultural area and prosperous and devout. That the that the church, the parish church, was very much at the center of the life, the, the, uh, the family life of the people of the Vendée. And then we also mentioned how uh, two things happened in uh, 1793, the, 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 the regicide, the execution, the beheading of the king, and then shortly thereafter, in February of 1793, the levy on mass, which was a, a, a draft, a military draft of unprecedented proportion, unprecedented in certainly in the history of the West. And I mentioned that the that the that the levee on mass itself is uh, a moment not only important in the history of this Vendee War, but also uh, also important in, in an important moment in in military history and in in, 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 in in modern warfare. And we'll talk a little bit about that some more this evening. And then the fact that the, that, that the levee on mass was called for at a specific time, a specific date in March, 11 March, all over the Vendee caused a lot of independent uprisings to, uh, to take place in these individual towns. So it wasn't the levee only in and of itself, but the timing of it as well that inspired independent uprisings that did, that in the Vendee on behalf of the clergy, on behalf of the church, on behalf of the, the king uh, that, um, that, that, that caused this uprising to take place so much all at once. And then just a couple more things we talked about the principal commanders, and they're listed on your 
hand out there, Charette, uh, Louis Gigot, again, I apologize for my excruciating French, uh, Liqueur, uh, Roche Jacqueline, and then two men, and two, two men who were not nobles themselves, Stofflet, Stofflet and Jacques Catalano. And Catalano was a, a wool peddler who was loved throughout the Vendée for his, for his piety, for his devotion, uh, and also for his capacity to stir the hearts of men. So with his, with his magnificent uh, rhetoric. So follow along on the handout. We're, we're right about now where Catalano and Bonchamp are going to meet in Menet Loire, and we're going to we're going to talk now about the, the progress of this of, of this conflict, and then what what it means. All right. So following the capture of Saint Florent in the Menet Loire. Oh, and remember on your map there are the four different districts uh, or the four different departments of the uh, of, uh, of the Vendée. Uh, right, so Menet-Loire, Du Sèvres, La Vendée, and loire Inferior. Right, very good. Uh, so, following the capture of Saint-Florent in the Menet-Loire, Department Catalano, the wool peddler, uh, addressed his growing army, and he calls for aggressive and decisive action. Uh, of Catalano, Napoleon would later write, he had the first essential quality of a man of war, that of never resting, either as a victor or as a vanquished. Catalano and Monchamp were very young men, 33 years old. And at the fore of their army, they advanced and they took the neighboring towns, uh, and I think all these towns are on your map, Gelet, they captured their first cannon, which the, which the Vendée soldiers christened uh, Le Missionaire, right? They called the canon the missionary, right? Because it's gonna spread the gospel. Uh, next, they took Chenille, and they're reinforced by the army under the gamekeeper Stofflet, Stofflet. And they take Cholet, and which fighting Beauchamp and Stofflet are both wounded, because they're always to the fore of their troops. Now we have a combined force uh, of about 20,000, peasants. They go to the next town, Vieille, and they take another cannon. They call Les Brutales. After five towns in a half as many days, the soldiers of the Catholic army, feeling that they had won a great victory, now what did they want to do? They wanted to go back to their farms. These men were farmers. And what is more, Holy Week was approaching. Wanting to advance all the way to Samur, the Vendée commanders instead withdrew with their depleted forces to Chenille to await reinforces headed, heading south from Beaupre. All these towns are on your map. Led by, led by uh, uh, Joseph Louis uh, Maurice uh, Gigot Delbe. The name Louis reminds me there, sorry to, to um, get off subject. Today, of course, is the feast. We're talking about this great uh, French military. Catholic French military story on the feast of the great crusader king, uh, Saint Louis, uh, Saint Louis the Ninth, and we celebrate his feast today on, on both the new uh, and, and, and the old calendar. So under the patronage of, of Saint Louis, we, we, we proceed. Okay, Delbay, like Bonchamp, at first attempted not to join the fight. When a delegation of farmers visited Delbay at his chateau, in the country, he was celebrating the baptism of his newborn son. And he said to the farmers who came to see him, my children, what have you done? How can you possibly hope to resist the troops of the Republic? Finding the peasants determined, he charged them never to cease fighting until they had thrown off the yoke of tyranny. He kissed his wife and baby goodbye and accompanied the delegation to Beaupre, where he took charge of the contingent and led them to Chenille, where they joined Stofflet's force. Together, they all march on Chalon, and without a single casualty, take that town. As these events were unfolding in the northeastern region of the Vendée Militaire, similar, so Vendée Militaire, the whole region, right? So as these events were unfolding in the northeastern region of the Vendée Militaire, Similar events were taking place 
to the direct west in the department that we now call uh, Loire Inferior. The sequence of events is nearly identical. The, the, after taking a town, in this case, Mashkul, an odd hat Catholic force, realizes it is in need of leadership, and they send a delegation to Francois Atenez Charette, insisting that he take charge. Charette had once previously dodged an embassy of peasants by hiding under his bed. But on this occasion, when he tried to refuse, the peasants mocked him. What is this, they cried? A former officer of the king who is unwilling to fight the wicked men who despoil churches and imprison priests? Charette had, in fact, served in the king's army. Indeed, he was with the force at the Tuileries on that fateful day in August of 1792 when the king and the queen were taken captive. Charette himself had barely escaped the massacre at the hands of the Paris mob. He disguised himself as a sanculotte and he picks up the severed leg of a slaughtered Swiss guard uh, over his shoulder and, he, and he, he, he marches out at the Tuileries. Charette was a ladies man. He was famous. He was famous as a dancer for his flamboyant dress. He enjoyed a good party as much as he enjoyed a good fight. He was a strategic thinker and a born leader, and he could not resist taking charge of the army. And this is what he said to his men. Our country is ourselves, he told them. It is our villages, our altars, our graves, all that our fathers loved before us. Our country is our faith, our land, our king. But the revolutionaries, what is their country? What is it? Do you understand it? It is something only in their imagination. Our country is our soil. It is under our feet. It is as old as the devil, the world that they call new and attempt to found in the absence of God. But in the face of these demons who rise up century after century, we are youth. We are the youth of God, the youth of fidelity. And this youth will preserve for its own and for its children true humanity and true liberty, that is, the liberty of the soul. Charette was youth. He was 29 years old. He took charge of his army. He led them through a rapid series of victories toward the Atlantic coast, ending with the taking of the seaport town of Pornice. South of the Loire Inferior, in the Bocage, right there in the middle of your map, the same story unfolds a third time. Town by town, the Vendée fell to the small Catholic armies rising simultaneously and independently. In one engagement, the Republican, uh, in one engagement, Republican troops heard what they, that is, that is the, you know, the, the, the troops of the, of the revolutionary government, heard what they thought was the Marseillais, sung by a friendly force advancing on the road, by the time they realized uh, that the Catholic army had refitted this stirring melody with reactionary lyrics of their own, it was too late. Catholic soldiers hidden behind hedges and trees began, as if out of nowhere, to pick off the regular soldiers with their crack marksmanship. Remember, we're talking about a, a, a people who have been hunting you know, their whole lives. Panic-stricken, the Republican forces fled, seeding hundreds and hundreds of square miles of territory. The story of the Vendée uprising, like the Bocage itself, is a bewildering tangle of names, places, dates, and simultaneous actions. Uh, so we're going to leave some considerable parts out of the story and have some generalizations. By the end of March 1793, the Catholic army controlled most of the four departments of the Vendée Militaire, including portions of the Atlantic coast, very important. Around them stood a perimeter of larger towns and harbors that were Republican strongholds. The Catholic army, it's really better to say armies because they were not yet coordinated, now faced a decision. 
or several decisions. While they yet had the advantage uh, of momentum, they might attempt to break through the Republican perimeter that surrounded the Vendée Militaire, uh, extend the rebellion to neighboring departments, like up into Brittany, for example, with the Chouinerie, and, and we talked about this two nights ago, someone asked this question, and seek to bring England into the conflict, right? Or they could consolidate and train the army, set up a command structure, and concentrate on establishing alternative governments to replace the Republican governments in the uh, municipalities that they now controlled. So they tried to do both, but alas, these strategic plans evolved at best uh, in fits and starts. Why? Well, in large part, because the Vendean army were made up of farmers who understandably, after having winning some victories, wanted just to go back to their farms and to their families. And this is what many of them did. Nonetheless, when in April of 1793, the first serious Republican effort to crush the rebellion came, the toxin rang out, right? The church bells rang out, and the Vendean soldiers wearing their Sacred Heart badge on their chest and telling their rosaries on the march mustered again. And in a series of guerrilla and traditional clashes drove back once again the Republican forces. By the end of April 1793, the Republican position was even weaker than it had been at the end of March. In May, the Vendeans took the fortress town of Tuar in the northeast, and then with a daring speed that would have inspired a Charlemagne or a Patton, countermarched southwest to aid the embattled Charette at Fontenay. A force of 30,000 overwhelmed the Republican army, taking 3,000 prisoners and 80 cannon. At Fontenay, a Supreme Council was formed. Writing a manifesto, they declared their objective to restore and preserve forever our holy apostolic Roman Catholic religion and to have a king who serves as a father to all within our country and a protector to all without. So the two pillars, like we said, the church and the monarchy, these are the things that the Vendeans seek to restore. At the convention in Paris, so the revolutionary government in Paris, this manifesto was understood clearly by its enemies. Nothing has been seen like this since the Crusades, wrote the Jacobin journalist, Bertrand Barrer. Steadily, a force that was at first armed only with clubs and a few hunting rifles was capturing and mastering the weapons necessary for genuine military success in the field. When the Vendean peasants truly, what the, what, what the Vendean peasants truly mastered was irregular warfare, or what theorists of the age, men like Germany, uh, and von Clausewitz uh, called petit guerre, right? Extensive use of camouflage, uh, small mobile skirmish lines, surprise attack that the Vendians would call shock, C-H-O-C, shock, it's on your outline, and warfare waged by small groups moving rapidly through thickly wooded, obstructed country to blow up a bridge, far behind enemy lines to ambush a supply column or to overwhelm an isolated post. What do we call this today? Essentially, guerrilla, guerrilla warfare. Clausewitz was particularly, von Clausewitz was particularly taken with the natural military ability and the tactics of the Vendean army. The, uh, though his study, he, he wrote a study of the conflict that um, we only have remnants of, it was never published. In contrast, the Republican, uh, and especially the National Guard, Guard forces, uh, so we have the regular troops of the Republican government and then the, the local uh, National Guard forces, by the testimony of their own or officers, were plagued with desertion, prone to looting and pillage, and cowardice under fire. 
Two nights ago, we talked about the parallels between this story in the Vendée, the uprising in the Vendée, and the, uh, the Cristero uprising in Mexico. And this is one of those parallels as well. The Mexican Federal Army during that war, plagued by desertion, uh, compared with the, uh, the, 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 the fervor of the, of, of the Mexican army, of the Mexican Catholic army. Three Vandean armies took shape and totaled 60,000 strong. Uh, although at most, maybe they had 10,000 troops in the field at any one time. Catholic governments were erected around parish councils, armories, munitions, workshops, hospitals, printing presses were set up. So it wasn't simply military victory that was taking place here. The Vandeans would, would assume control of small towns or villages and municipalities, and then they would set up their own governments in those places, and then these governments would begin to do the, the business of government, uh, including, of course, support the war effort. Nonetheless, the Catholic army failed to exploit thoroughly its tactical successes. The leadership of the Vandean army quarreled over the best course of action, but the deeper reality hampering major success was in the nature, as I've said, of the Vendée and her people. This was a deeply decentralized region where peasants had strong ties to their former feudal lords, their villages, their parishes. Their chief love was, were, their chief loves were the mass, family life, farming, the soil of their ancestors. Ad hoc soldiers, really not soldiers at all, but armed citizens, rebelling in part against a draft to staff an army to fight a distant war, were not good candidates for long-term strategic operations. One Vendean peasant at the outset of the war announced, with the nobles to lead us, we'll go to Paris. But if he or any of his comrades had really thought about what that boast meant, they probably would have admitted that Paris was the last place that they wanted to go. The uprising was a Catholic movement first, to which a royalist sentiment was later attached. So first church, then king. Restoring the monarchy was of less importance to them than restoring their priests. And once they'd achieved this, the peasants of the Vendée, they just wanted to be left alone. But to be left alone was the last thing the revolutionary government in Paris was going to permit. In May, the convention in Paris sent deputies to the Vendée charged with enlightening the misguided citizens, scattering the rebels, punishing the brigands, and returning to the nation those citizens lost to her through seduction and ignorance. The proclamations of these deputies must have amused the Vendean peasants because they made the common propaganda error of expressing the author's convictions rather than playing to the feelings of its audience. One such, here's an example, one such pro proclamation attempted to win the hearts and minds of reactionary Catholics with a defense of divorce and an attack on clerical celibacy. What is wrong with divorce, it read. If there, is there impiety in softening the conditions of men and preventing them from spending unhappy days in quarrels, reproaches, and all the dissensions created by mutual incompatibility? What is wrong with allowing priests to marry? After all, 11 of the 12 apostles were married, right? So Republican propaganda had very little effect on devout Catholic hearts. The summer campaigns proceeded with the Republican armies making little progress in the interior as the Grand Army of the Vendée chipped away at the perimeter. In June, Saint-Mer fell, and the road to Paris seemed open. The leaders quarreled. Do we take Nantes, or do we take Paris? Napoleon would later write, 
If Charette and Catalano had gathered all their force to march on the capital, the Republic would have been finished. Nothing could have stopped the triumphant march of the Royal Army. The white flag would have flown over the towers of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, but it would have been possible for the armies of the Rhine, before, excuse me, it would have been possible for the armies of the Rhine to come to the aid of their government. So in hindsight, Napoleon predicts that if Charette had marched on Paris, that he could have restored the monarchy. We'll never know if the Corsican's uh, analysis was accurate. Catalano, who's now generalissimo, sided with Charette, and they proposed a march on Nantes. The idea was a good one. There was real hope, we talked about this on Tuesday briefly, there was real hope of English intervention in the conflict. There had been secret correspondence between Vendée leadership and the British War Department that laid plans for a coordinated efforts to secure a seaport and land basically an amphibious uh, assault uh, on, on the uh, west coast of France. The capture of Nantes would have supported such a plan. Uh, it also would have open lines of communication with the Chouannerie, which uh, who are featured in the Balzac novel, which was a royalist uprising in Brittany. Alas, the British government delayed. They were dilatory. By the time they were ready to sail, it was too late for the Catholic army. The assault on Nantes on June 29 marks the turning point in the war in the Vendée. As the seemingly victorious Catholic army tore across the city square, a bullet from a lone sniper found the lungs of the courageous wool peddler charging at the vanguard. Mortally wounded, Catalano urged his men to press the fight, but absent their leader, they fell apart. The assault on Nantes failed. There were other victories. Uh, they were not decisive. One deserves special mention. Ladies listening will, be a, will find this of particular interest uh, because of the role the women of the Vendée played in it. At Torfu, uh, 20 miles southeast of Nantes, the Catholic army under Charette faced off against a battle-hardened unit from the Prussian front, the Mayunse led by General Albert Dubayet, who had served with Lafayette in America, and by Jean-Baptiste Kleber, an Alsatian who had served for eight years in the German army and would later serve as Napoleon's commander, second-in-command in Egypt. After two days of hard fighting in which the advantage traded sides several times, the Vendean army was routed and put to flight. Fleeing for a bridge over the River Seine, the retreating Catholic soldiers were surprised to find their wives, who had been following the army, praying at a cavalry by the corner of the bridge. Blocking the crossing, these courageous women hurled insults at their husbands, declaring that if they would not fight for the faith, then their women would. Women began taking rivals and clubs from their men. At this moment, Charette, six bullets pierced through his clothes and his hat, comes galloping up and he rallies the shame the men. If you desert me, I alone will win or die, he said. The cure simultaneously rallied his force. Are there not 400 men brave enough to die with me? He cried out. Hearing of the rally, the wounded Bonchamp leapt up from his stretcher. He mounted his horse, waving his hats, and he rallied his force for the counterattack. An immense Catholic tide swept the plateau of Torfu. On seeing that Bonchamp had rejoined the fight, General Kleber growled, now that dirty scoundrel Bonchamp has arrived, we are completely had. Delbay arrived with reinforcements, and the whole of the Monday army overwhelmed the Mayense whose retreating columns were put to flight by the guerrilla tactics and deadly marksmanship of the Catholic soldiers. Glorious as the day was, 
The victory and others like it that followed did not break the stalemate. The terrible fury that at last broke the stalemate has a name, total war. The army of the French Republic, like the Republic itself, was a thing in transition, a transition paralleled by the profound leftward swing of the government. The initial commanders of the Republican army in the Vendee yet played to one degree or another by the old rules. As late as May of 1793, Armand-Louis, the Duke of Biron, who was in command of the French army in Italy, a command that Napoleon would eventually assume, was given command of the Republican army in the Vendée. He emphasized drill and discipline, guarding the coast against the possibility of an English or Spanish landing, and he took care to limit especially civilian casualties. For his trouble, he was sacked, he was recalled to Paris for treason, and he was guillotined. His failure in the eyes of the increasingly radical convention in Paris was that he did not completely crush the Catholic rebellion. Biron was a ci-devant noble who sure enough had made his peace with the revolution, but had learned to soldier in the king's army. Subsequent Republican generals in the Vendee were increasingly radical, increasingly radical politically, and as a consequence, increasingly radical in the way that they prosecuted the war. Some of them lacked the expertise obtained by a life of service in the Royal Army, but they made up for this lack with a feral enthusiasm for the tenets of revolution and an aggressively cultivated hatred of the other. This enthusiasm manifested itself in a demonic brutality in the field. We can easily point to, historians, military historians especially, can easily point to the Vendée in 1793 as the place in time where once and for all, limited war gives way to total war. In the passage from von Clausewitz, uh, von Clausewitz, of which Vladimir Lenin was particularly fond, war freed from every bond of convention broke loose in all its elemental fury. Throughout the winter of 1793, the convention poured into the Vendee more and more Republican forces. Seasoned officers and troops combined with new levees, new recruits from other parts of France to make an army that comprised vast professional skill and extreme revolutionary ardor. Tightening their grip on the Vendée, they closed on the Vendean army with superior forces and superior numbers. First, encircling them in the mountainous regions around Cholet, where in fighting on the 17th of October, Delbay was killed. The remains of the Vendean army retreated across the Loire River, joined by some 80 to 100,000, some 80,000 to 100,000 civilians who had seen firsthand the elemental fury of which von Clausewitz speaks. Desecration of churches, burning of private homes, prisoners shot, massacres of villages, and the worst was yet to come. The Vendean army makes a, made a final stand at Savenay, northeast of Nantes, against the army of Francois Joseph Westerman, another Alsatian. After a year of hard fighting, the rural Catholic region was now to witness an even greater horror, reprisal. A war of, Renal Sachet says, a war of unbearable barbarity, which nonetheless had been a war, was followed by a coldly calculated genocide. After the defeat, 
at 7A. The citizens of the Vendée attempted to come back across the Loire and return to their homes. When they did, they were rounded up and systematically executed. Under Westerman's supervision, men, women, children, and elderly were marched into fields, made to stand before shallow graves, and shot. If they did not die, they were bayoneted to death or left to suffocate under the bodies of the dead. In cities such as Nantes, Cholet, and Angers, the guillotine operated around the clock. Even then, the genocide did not proceed at a pace to satisfy the demonic Westermen and the convention's representatives in Nantes. A profoundly wicked man named Jean-Baptiste Carrier. Carrier devised an efficient means of execution that he called patriotic baptism, loading large numbers of men and women, many holding children in their arms, onto barges and sinking them in the Loire River. When after the fall of Robespierre, the revolutionary finally claimed Cahiers, as it claimed so many uh, of its agents, he was brought to trial and a witness testified. At first, the drownings were done in secret at night, but then the revolutionary committee only became more cruel and the drownings were then conducted in the light of day. At first, individuals were drowned with their clothes on, but later the committee, driven by greed, horrific cruelty, and a desire to humiliate, stripped the clothes from those it wanted to emulate to the different passions driving it. A favorite uh, uh, execution of Cahiers was uh, something that he called Republican marriages. This most diabolical affront to Christian purity, a young man and a young woman would be stripped naked and lashed together under the armpits and then thrown in to the Loire River. Some 5,000 churchgoers, as Cahiers referred to the Catholics, were drowned in this manner. There followed the Le Coron Infernal, the infernal columns, commanding six divisions, with each division divided into two columns. General Louis-Marie Thoreau set his soldiers on the defenseless villages of the Vendée with instruction to kill every man, woman, and child in sight. To conserve power, the order was given to use the saber and the bayonet. Women were raped as a matter of course. Then they were stabbed or shot or left to hang upside down from the trees. Pregnant women had their bellies ripped open and their unborn babies carried away on bayonets. Women and children were thrown into furnaces or from windows onto bayonets waiting below. Crops were burned and stores were destroyed. Any Catholic who escaped the infernal columns now faced the threat of starvation. French scholar Renaud Sachet, whose book I recommend to you, The French Genocide, has made a, a meticulous examination of the population records, deeds, correspondence, and trial testimony. And he concludes that in parts of the Vendée, as much as 30% of the population were exterminated during the four-month period of the infernal columns. 120,000 for certain. 120,000 for certain were killed. The actual number is probably something closer to a half a million. There's no question that the work of the infernal columns was not the loss of control of men in battle. This wasn't simply soldiers, you know, who, who, who lost control in battle. It was a deliberately ordered war against the civilian population. This, my friends, this is the French Revolution in its effects. If we wish to understand the revolution, we have to look at it in its effects. A deliberately ordered war against a genocide against 
the civilian population. The Committee of Public Safety, in, the respect, in direct response from a request from Turo to put women and children in the sword, responded, we agree with General Turo on this most certain means of exterminating the entirety of that race. Totally crush the horrible Vandey. The reports of the various column commanders boast of this meticulous care with which they covered their assigned territories and the creativity of their cruelty. It is true, the Catholic soldiers of the Vendée shot prisoners. It's also true that after the Battle of Chenille, Del Bay stayed the hands of his troops who wanted to return evil for evil by executing 500 Republican prisoners, by first charging them to fall on their knees and offer a paternoster. After the Battle of Cholet, when the Vendée army was retreating across the Loire, there was a cry to execute 5,000 Republican prisoners who were hampering the crossing. The mortally wounded Bonchamp insisted that the Republican prisoners be spared. There is a statue that stands today in saint Florent celebrating Bonchamp's famous amnesty. And it, the statue was carved by a descendant of a Republican prisoner saved by Bonchamp's appeal for mercy to the prisoners. But yes, it is so. The Vendean soldiers, when torn loose from the Christian leadership of the nobles who led them, shot prisoners and did worse things than that. But the atrocities of which we can convict the Catholic army and those committed by the army of the revolution are not differences merely of magnitude, they are altogether differences of kind. One is a reaction of the fallen human heart, pushed beyond its limits by suffering, by witnessing one brutal injustice after another. The infernal columns, my friends, on the other hand, were the deliberate, calculated extermination of a people because of their love of Jesus Christ. It is an unexamined tenet of the modern creed that the French Revolution, though given at times to excess, created a new order of Western, of individual rights for Western civilization. From one widely used high school European history text, we, this used, by the way, in, in, in a Catholic high school, uh, we learn that the revolution destroyed many of the decadent privileges that characterized the old European regime and replaced them with liberal political ideas summarized in the slogan, liberty, equality, and fraternity. My friends, Alexander Solzhenitsyn thought otherwise. On the 200th anniversary of the war of the Vendée, he visited the Vendée and delivered an address at the dedication of a monument to the martyrs in the town of Boulogne, where women and children were massacred inside a now ruined church. A new one stands alongside, a testament to Holy Mother's capacity, ultimately, to outlast those who would destroy her. The French Revolution, Solzhenitsyn said, unfolded under the banner of a self-contradictory and unrealizable slogan, liberty, equality, fraternity. But in the life of society, liberty and equality are mutually exclusive, even hostile concepts. Liberty by its very nature undermines social equality and equality suppresses liberty. For how else could it be attained? Fraternity, meanwhile, is of entirely different stock. In this instance, says Solzhenitsyn, it is merely a catchy addition to the slogan, true fraternity is achieved by means not social, but spiritual. The total war in the Vendée that was one, the total war in the Vendée was one of the bitter fruits of concepts 
in concepts in contradiction. And total war is the legacy of the French Revolution. One need only attend to Westerman's own report of his actions in the Vendée. There is no more Vendée, Republican citizens. It died beneath our free sword with its women and children. I have just buried it in the swamps and woods following the orders you gave me. I crushed the children beneath the horse hooves and massacred the women who will now bear no more brigands. I have not a single prisoner with which to reproach myself. I have exterminated them all. And this very legacy would make its way to American shores 73 years later, when General Sherman, channeling the demonic spirit of Westerman, would declare, until we can repopulate Georgia, it is useless to occupy it. But the other destruction of the roads, houses, and people will cripple, will cripple their military resources. I can make the march, and I can make Georgia howl. I feel justified in resorting to the harshest measures, and I shall make little effort to restrain my army. We are fighting not only a hostile army, but a hostile people, and must make old and young, rich and poor, men and women, feel the hard hand of war. If the people raise a howl against my cruelty, I will answer that war is war. If they want peace, they and their relatives must stop the war. We euphemistically refer to General Sherman's war crimes as the march to the sea, but they should be called Sherman's infernal column, for it, the dropping of the atomic bomb, and any time an American head of state has uttered the phrase unconditional surrender, these things are the legacy of the French Revolution. But the legacy of the rising in the Vendée is another matter. It is something sublime. It was, although it was part of the long defeat that J.R.R. Tolkien asserts is the only Christian understanding of history, it is an inspiration so magnificent it should be called a grace. Signed with the cross of Christ, a whole people rose up against impossible odds took up arms and stood in the path of hell unleashed. Why? For liberty, for equality, for, for fraternity? No, for blood and soil and for the mystical body of Jesus Christ, for his church and her priests. Perhaps we will all go to our graves without having to answer so sacred a call to arms, but the direction of the world makes clear this, that sooner or later our sons or their sons or their sons will have to. May they die like soldiers of Christ, emulating Francois Athenais Charette. Charette took the Vendée War to the hills for three years after it was officially over, as he and his small band waging guerrilla actions as they were able. At last he was captured and brought before the firing squad, disdaining the blindfold, he looked his executioners in the eye and pointing to his heart said, aim here, gentlemen, here is where you must strike a man of faith and courage. Thank you so much, Chris. That was really wonderful. Really, you know, really hit the heart there. Yeah, it's really interesting to find out that, uh, it was because of the French Revolution that total war actually kind of came into existence. That's it really, uh, you see the product of enlightenment thinking, which has its existence in the French Revolution. Yeah, there's, a, there's an excellent book uh, that I would recommend. In fact, it's written by um, a, a non-believer, uh, General J.F.C. Fuller, I think one of the best military historians in the English language. Um, he, he's, he's the author of the three-volume set, The Military History of the Western World. Uh, but he has, a, he has a lesser known book that I recommend very strongly to people called The Conduct of War, uh, Conduct of War 1793 to 1962 or something like that. And he, it, it, it's largely from Fuller's thought that, I, that, that, you know, that I've stolen this, that I've stolen this argument that uh, um, 
you know, these enlightenment ideas unfettered, this is how they manifest themselves on the, on the field of battle. And, uh, and, and here I can very quickly get out of my field, but Europe was very much reeling uh, from the 17th century uh, and, and, the, and, and the Thirty Years' War, which was a period of considerable brutality. And, uh, and, and at, at the conclusion of the Thirty Years' War, the, you know, the kings of Europe and the princes of Europe really very much agreed to uh, a, a fighting much more limited warfare. And there's a period from the middle of the, from the middle of the 17th century up until the French Revolution where warfare is considerably more restricted. Um, it's really one of the great things of the second half of the 17th century and now lost forever. It's certainly not part of the American vocabulary. Yeah, that's unfortunate. It's very, especially in our modern time, when you mentioned the, uh, the two nuclear bombs and sure. uh, Sherman's March and so forth. And, uh, and especially warfare now, we hear politicians calling for, uh, you know, in Iraq and overseas, other uh, just complete, unconditional, total war and no regard to civilians. And it's, it's really playing into the hands of our enemies, too. I mean, oh, we're sure it is. Yeah. yeah. No, there's nothing. There's not. There's nothing Christian in the notion of unconditional surrender. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I agree. All right. Um, why don't we take a question and answer now? Uh, so, uh, Monica, are are you gonna? Um, I I know we had a few um, from earlier. I'm gonna start with the one that was asked, just because um, I wanna close these two boxes so I can see the other questions. It's all selfish. <laughs> um, and it's a very long question, so I'm going to kind of paraphrase. I hope I do it justice. Um, but Cody was asking um, about when you mentioned the September 2nd massacre last time that was promoting propaganda. Um, it was asking about Jean-Paul Marat. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but um, and what his role was, and he mentions a lot of things about his, uh, he says he has three main targets of his propaganda. So can you speak to that a little bit? Have you heard of him? And Yeah, sure. No, he's certainly one of the, one of the, one of the early principal revolutionaries. I, 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 I'm just simply going to punt that one and recommend that um, if people want a good understanding of, of, the, of the principal players and the personalities of the, uh, of the, of the early revolutionaries, that they get uh, Dr. Carroll's book, uh, The Guillotine and the Cross, that um, from which we took the title of this, uh, as, as, as Father said, is in the public domain, the title anyway. Um, and, and, and I think he does an excellent personality study of the principal revolutionaries, and I would, I would refer people to Dr. Carroll uh, for, for that. Yeah. I know a couple other people uh, live had a question. Um, I'm actually going to pick on Ruth, who's raising her hand, and she had a wonderful question at the beginning. So, Ruth, you should be up and ready to go. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Check. Uh, I'm curious as to whether the, um, the clergy were influenced at all in their uh, resistance to signing the Constitution uh, by the example of, the poor example of the clergy in England, you know, a couple hundred years before. Sure. Is that any influence? Yeah, that's a great question, and I actually have never thought of that. Certainly they would be familiar uh, with, 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 with the apostasy of England and the, and the, and the, and the, and the schism of England. Um, the... I, I, I'm a, uh, a uh, what's it called an, an, an enthusiast for the story of, of, of Joan of Arc, which takes place, of course, many many years before this. But one of the interpretations that I've always pinned on that uh, on, on the Joan of Arc story is that by by ultimately, of course, in this takes before this this takes place before the the uh, the, the reign of Henry, Henry VIII, several centuries. But by kicking England out of France. Joan preserves for another several centuries the Catholic faith in the eldest daughter of the church. Uh, what certainly is true is that there were priests who did sign the Constitution, but after Pope Pius VI declared that this was a schismatic act, most of them um, renounced it. As far as in English influence 
on the revolution itself, thinkers, and this is not an answer to your question, but thinkers like uh, Locke, we mentioned last week, Locke and Adam Smith, and to a degree David Hume, though I'm a little reluctant to group him there because I'm, he's a, an important philosopher, despite his errors. Um, men like this, of course, had a lot of influence on, on, uh, on, on the philosophical thought that, that fomented the revolution. But you ask a great question, I don't know the answer to it. It's an interesting speculative question, whether or not, uh, no, we're not gonna see this happen uh, as it did in England. France is the eldest daughter of the church, you know, going all the way back to the time, to the baptism of Clovis, right? And, uh, and we pray one day that she'll return. Boy, so many beautiful monuments in France. I was just there uh, not a month ago, and we were, our group from Catholic Answers, we were in Rouen, where one of the most beautiful, absolutely must be three or four most beautiful cathedrals in the world. And just three or four days before, uh, and only a few miles away from the murder of that priest by uh, uh, Islamic militants. But great question, it's something to think about. Thank you, Mr. Check. That's my dream one day is to go there. <laughs> oh, well, Rouen, Amiens, Rouen, Chartres. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the, and people always say, oh, those backward Middle Ages. It's ridiculous that the most beautiful buildings in the world were built during the Christian age. <laughs> we're not building buildings like that now. <laughs> yeah. We have a, a few more questions coming in. We have one from Eric, um, who's a good friend of the Institute. He asked, was the wealth of abbots an excuse to target the church and Catholics? There were, uh, so there were abbots that uh, were, were absentee. They would be the abbots of um, multiple uh, abbeys, and, and this would be irregular, of course, and they made very good livings. And abbots by canon law, even then, then as now, were required to reside. And their abbots. So, so this this in fact was an abuse that, uh, in a way that these two estates, the uh, noble class or the, the noble class and and the church, had become exceedingly centralized and disassociated with uh, with, with with the people for whom for whose care that they had charge. Um, and one example that we used last uh, you know on Tuesday. The difference between the salary of a parish priest or a curé in the Vendée and his bishop, whom he may never suck me, you know, by, by as many as a hundred times uh, more. So there was a legitimate, there was certainly a legitimate unhappiness with the way the church was being governed in France. And reform was certainly due, as, as it is from time to time in the church. Yeah. Thank you. And we have actually a question coming in from Ida on our related subject. Ida, you're unmuted and you should be able to ask your question. Okay, it's sort of a dual question. Were the clergy or the nobles singled out for special abuse? And what was the Pope's reaction to all of this? Well, the nobility especially, yeah, and the clergy both were singled out for special abuse. Many of them were executed, guillotined. Uh, and, and Pope Pius VI's reaction to this was the condemnation of the civil constitution of the clergy, uh, the Pope at this point is not in, in, in a moment in the history of the papacy where he's carrying a lot of political influence. So beyond that, uh, beyond instructing his clergy, no, you can't, you can't be a juring priest, you cannot sign, and encouraging his bishops and his priests, uh, he's, he's a little bit ineffectual. And of course, Pius uh, VII later is, uh, it, it, the, the things go, continue to go down, Hill for the papacy, Pius VII is uh, kidnapped and held uh, hostage by Napoleon for the better part of a year, a little bit more than a year. It doesn't really get much better. We get to the reign of, of uh, you know, Pius IX and the Resurgimento, and uh, so the papal states are continuing to contract and contract. So it's the beginning of the end, really, for, well, actually, beginning before that, but for the political authority of the church. Thank you, Mr. Check. We have three more questions coming in. Um, first, uh, from Jay Ricardo, Jose Ricardo, asking or saying, I've been to Alsace. I can't pronounce it. I'm so sorry. And I was surprised to find out that two or, or of the more vicious generals of the Republican Army, Cleaver and Westerman, came from that region. I thought Alsace was more uh, Catholic than some other regions of France. 
Yeah, great question. It's true. They, they, they were Alsatians and they were highly trained uh, military generals and, 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 and how we, I, I don't know that necessarily we can account for their cruelty because they were Alsatians. So, but yeah, it, it's an interesting idea. Thank you. Uh, we have another one coming in asking, do you know of any further resistances in the Vendee after the first war of co coalition? I know that they resisted Napoleon's return during the Hundred Days in Words, uh, but that's all I know. It's yeah, there's actually, there, actually resistances, that's a great question. Resistances continue uh, up until 1832, in fact, uh, they, they flare up from time to time. Nothing on the scale of the story we've just told, but they do flare up from time to time. And 1832, of course, will be a year that will be familiar to everyone here, whether they know it or not, because that's the same year as the student uprising that is featured in uh, Les Miserables, made so famous by the stage play or the stage musical, uh, and, and then more recently, the picture. Uh, so, uh, yeah, in fact, there's an excellent book, and 1832 is in the title, and I forget the name of it right now, and I can find it and email it to you, Monica, and we can, and we can post it up, that, that, that tr continues to trace the histories of this resistance. But yeah, great question. There are. There are. And our last question we have, um, is doesn't the church by definition have to expect opposition? I can't imagine Christianity without it. I thought that'd be a fun one to end with. Oh, well, it's, it, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's all, uh, it's in all four gospels and father can give us chapter and verse, but it's, uh, you, you will be hated by all men, you know, for my name's sake. And, uh, and that, that really is the best way to understand these stories. It's, it's the perfect context for understanding these stories of wars against the church. And by the way, it's the perfect understanding for uh, the, sort of, the, sort of the, the propaganda wars against the church too. Um, for example, the, the rewriting of the history of the Crusades or uh, you know, the Inquisition, which is another stick that we use to, uh, that, that's commonly used to beat the, the church with, people don't really understand it. Or, or you know, a very famous one, the Galileo affair, which people think they'd know some facts about and most of the time, they don't really know what the facts are. But the overarching uh, reality that explains the, that, that hostility to the church comes right from the words, of, right from the mouth of our Savior. You will be hated by all men until the end of time for, for my name's sake, or exactly however it goes, Father can give us to his chapter and verse. That's, I think I got it pretty closely. But yeah, great question. Absolutely true. And we need to be prepared for that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. If the church isn't experiencing resistance, something's wrong. It's not doing its job. Exactly. Thank you very much, Christopher. Uh, it was a pleasure having you speak for us and uh, God bless. Good night, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.